Welcome to the Voices in Recovery podcast, brought to you by Freedom's Path Recovery Society. We're not affiliated with any one 12-step fellowship, nor do we wish to propose only one solution for addiction. We want to welcome as many disciplines at work as there are people recovering. We understand how different solutions can greatly increase an individual's chance of survival, and we encourage people to use whatever means necessary. Regardless of where you are right now, where you're going, or where you've been, we want to welcome you one and all. We hope to illuminate the process of recovery by sharing as many of the human triumph stories as we can. Why, you might ask? So we can show others we can and do build stable lives from a former state of chaos, desperation, and hopelessness. As a part of my life and my work, I wander into all kinds of anonymous meeting rooms, facilitate several types of group workshops, hear amazing stories from incredible humans, and every time I am able to listen, I become ever more grateful to hear how brave and resilient my fellows are. Hopefully, it is no different for you. Tonight's guest, well, I don't have to read anything that I wrote here. Um, tonight's guest is Heather Morjo, and she is my partner and an amazing human being. I could totally gush, but I'm just going to like let her talk and introduce herself. And the truth is, there's a lot to her. So, welcome, Heather. Welcome. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I'm Heather Morjo. I've been in recovery for six years now. And I am, yeah, I'm not really sure how to introduce myself. I'm a designer. I'm an artist. I am Métis heritage and just about to launch a social enterprise. Um, What's that called? Foodscape Calgary. Yeah? Yeah. Cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Right on. So um, where would you like me to begin? Um why don't we hold that thought and okay. I'll just finish this like little opening that I have to do okay. in order to make sure that you and I don't get in trouble. Uh, please remember that any and all opinions shared are heard and heard are those of the individuals and not a reflection of Freedom's Path Recovery Society or any other entity. We wish to honor all people wherever they might be along their process. So in order to provide our guests and listeners with a sincere and genuine experience, all persons involved in the podcast have a right to their opinions and a right to share them. Defining recovery as a process of adjusting to changes in life prior to, during, or after a life event or events which have caused residual trauma of some kind in the individual's life. This can include, but is not exclusive to, alcoholism, chemical dependencies, process addictions, mental illness, codependency, medical challenges, grief, etc. The individuals on this program may use strong language. I can almost guarantee it. Um, adult themes and situations, as well as stories of death and dying and many other types of human tragedy. It is not suitable for children unless they are accompanied by a parent or guardian or have the explicit permission of those individuals. Okay, now we can start. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what do you want to tell? What would you like to tell anyone that's listening? We'll assume there's like going to be lots of people listening. Mm -hmm. So what would you like to tell them about your story? Um, I, I really wish I had taken time to consider these questions before I had started. Well, why don't I start? Okay. Is that okay? Yeah. Because if you, I, I don't want to like put you on the spot, but like, I know this is a little, this could be a little weird because you and I are partners as yeah. well, but I'll start. And if you want to like correct me or anything, just do it. Okay. Like, um, so I've never met anyone like you. Like I had never met anyone like you and I've met a lot of people. 
I met a lot of people <laughs> and I don't remember anyone being so, um, I don't know how to describe it. Well, first of all, so intelligent. Like I, and I'm not saying that people that I know aren't intelligent. I'm saying that I've never gotten to know anyone quite like you in the way that I have gotten to know you. So one of the things that really freaked me out about you as a human was that you were a surrogate, right? Mm -hmm. Now, it freaked me out only because I had never met anyone who did that before, right? Mm -hmm. So what what can you tell us about that, about being a surrogate? Yeah, so if we're talking about my surrogacy, we have to go back like 15 years to when one of my cousins came out of the closet. And I had just come out the year prior Mm -hmm. as queer, bisexual, and he came out shortly thereafter and, mm-hmm. and told the whole family. And, of course, they were as understanding <clears throat> as they possibly could be in the 2000s, the early 2000s. And I said to him, <clears throat> excuse me, I said to him, if you decide that you would like to have children at any point in your life, I would love the opportunity to be a surrogate for you. Mm-hmm. So did he believe you? I don't think he really even understood what I was proposing. You know, we were 18. I would have had a hard time buying it. Yeah. (laughs) So, and I think he was just like ecstatic to be out of the closet. Right. And, and loved and accepted and supported by his Mm -hmm. family. So I, I said this, he's like, okay, thanks cuz no problem. And then 15 years pass and he has zero interest in raising a family. Mm-hmm. Um, he's what he affectionately calls a power gay. So he's mm. focused on his career and um, mm. his health and fitness. And I always thought power gay meant something different. It might. It might. <laughs> I was always maybe looking for a power gay in a different way. <laughs> Sorry. So that's my cousin. And then uh, he... That's cool. He was like, I, I went to Pride for the first time here in Calgary and I was marching with the NDP party, mm. and it was my first time marching in the parade, which was really exciting. And then afterwards, I went um, and spent a little bit of time at the park, but I felt a little intimidated yeah. by how many people there were. So I was just looking at pictures when I got home from the event, and I, I noticed that there was an uh, one of the vendors that I had not seen when I was there was a fertility and surrogacy booth. Mm. And so I contacted them and it was Canadian Fertility Consultants. And I said, I don't know if this, if I would qualify. I just want to know more about this. What does the surrogate process look like? You're at Pride. So that aligns perfectly with what I would consider my inspiration for wanting to be a surrogate. And so we talked about it and there's an intensive screening process for Mm -hmm. any surrogate. Um, Canadian surrogates are not financially compensated the same way American Mm -hmm. or USA surrogates are. It is completely altruistic here. So that means there's still going to be hoops and stuff that you have to jump through um, medically to make sure that you're fit for being a carrier for for someone. So being a person in recovery, being someone with current disorder, I didn't think I would qualify. Mm -hmm. I'm like, nope, as soon as they hear that I have had problems with addiction they're going to reject me right outright as soon as i hear that i've had problems with mental illness they're going to reject me outright Mm. but you know i'm i'm living an honest program today so there's like a concert happening downstairs so i hope i don't know if they can hear that but um 
So yeah, yeah I, it wasn't one of us farting. No, it was like, there's seriously. like a concert down there. <laughs> but um, yeah, so there was uh, a, an extensive interview process and I was just rigorously honest as mm-hmm. per the program dictates, you know, if they reject me because I'm honest, that's good. Mm-hmm. If they accept me because I'm dishonest, that's bad. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it was a real challenge for me to get that real about myself and they were really understanding another component that was different for me is that all surrogates have to have carried a pregnancy before Mm. and typically this means that you're a mother but for me i was a birth mother Mm -hmm. and my son was adopted so that was also an exception to their rule and so Mm. typically surrogates have to have the children in the their care but because mine was uh 17 years ago and i was it was not a situation where he was um pgo mm-hmm. from me then it was they were more flexible mm-hmm. right and were willing to work with me so they matched me with this incredible couple um a gay couple that has been together for a few years and wanted to have a baby and I met them and I was so nervous and awkward. Mm -hmm. And then following the agreement that I was going to be their surrogate, I went to the very first sacred surrogacy retreat. Mm -hmm. That retreat changed everything I thought I knew about being a woman. Mm -hmm. So So during this retreat, they talk about, you know, our creative power. Right. Like we have women within us, this ability to grow a baby. Right. Anyone with a womb has that power. Mm-hmm. Right. And well, I shouldn't say anyone because there are some women who mm-hmm. can't carry. Yeah. Right. But the the creative element of being able to carry is incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. And it connects us to each other in a way that I had never connected to women before. Mm. So we went to this retreat and we did uh, fear release, which was writing down our fears on a piece of wood and burning it. You know, and I was able to let go of some stuff that had actually brought me into addiction Hmm. through that fear release process. And it was kind of like a step four or five, but in a different way. Yeah. Right. And then I was able to connect with the other women and and talk with them in a way that I had never been able to talk to women before. Mm -hmm. And it was absolutely profoundly transformative i cried a lot Mm -hmm. too right and uh i trusted women in a way that i never had before so when i got back from the surrogate retreat i'm chatting with my guys and i'm like you know what when we've started this process i was very clinical i was very serious i was very rigid and i i don't want to be that way with you guys Mm -hmm. you know this is a journey this is an experience of bringing a family with their child together Mm -hmm. and that and in partnership in sisterhood with other women who are doing the same thing so that is an incredible experience Mm -hmm. and i'm so grateful that i had that sisterhood connection because i had met surrogates who had done it just with a contract Mm -hmm. no support just them and the family and there was nothing positive that they had to tell me about it so that was the beginning process and uh what brought me to the opportunity to have surrogacy. And it was around that time that you and I started connecting. Mm -hmm. 
Right. And by connecting, you mean... <laughs> I'm going to drink mine. It just like instantly went to connecting. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but that too happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was a concert. I know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't been in concert in 20 years. Yeah. And then you you call, you invited me. Did you call or text? You called, I think. Did I call? I think you texted and then called. And then... You said, do you want to go to a concert? And my answer was yes, when every other time I'd answered no. Because I've been asked a few times through the years, but I always said no, because I was like... But then again, it was Pussifer, so... Yeah. And it was Maynard, so Maynard's. I was like, okay, I'm going to go, because it's Maynard, and you can't say no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, Un- there's only so many musical geniuses born each generation. Agreed. And yeah. you have and he's to... he's one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. For sure. Yeah. So from my perspective, so like with the surrogacy thing, I could see that you had the like a strong fellowship, right? Mm-hmm. And how important that was for you. Um, because there's a couple of reasons why I, I had a hard time believing anyone would actually do that, right? Not because I don't know selfless people. I know lots of people who give their whole life to something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of the circle I hang out in, yeah. and which is incredible that I get to hang out there with people like yourself. You're a lucky dude. I am. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, people like yourself who just simply do these things. Because, um, see, one of the things that was in my head about it was that you were giving up a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean, like, just little stuff, right? Uh, you're, you were accepting that your body was going to change. Mm-hmm. You were accepting that you were... And you were willing to give your body away in order for these gentlemen to, to have a family. And I gotta be honest with you, like that just, that, that shit just doesn't happen every day. No. Right. No, like there's, um, I mean, I could see it happening every day in the States cause you can make a quarter million dollars, Easy. Right? whatever yeah. you can make, yeah. which makes perfect sense for people who maybe aren't skilled in other ways. Mm-hmm. Like it's a, per- it's perfectly fine. I don't have any issue with that. Mm-hmm. I think like, when you start talking about doing it as a um, a gift, hmm. it just it, it just kind of takes a little bit of time for that to like make sense, right? Mm-hmm. Because of all the stuff you you had, you didn't mind sacrificing, and the stuff that you're still fighting with after, like because we're not twenty years old, no, right? So yeah. um, pregnancy when I was seventeen was a lot different than pregnancy when I was. 20 or like 35 36 yeah it's way different much different yeah yeah and i mean for me when i look at the surrogacy for profit Mm -hmm. i don't think i would have done it Mm -hmm. right like there's compensation for expenses which are incurred because of the pregnancy Mm -hmm. but if it was like oh yeah i'll carry your baby for 100 g you know it's like ah then it kind of takes the special elements away from it that i really took from it which is for me activism Mm -hmm. is a is one of those components right i think it is important for same sex and non-gender conforming couples Mm -hmm. to raise children there there's even some scientific element uh, scientific studies which indicate that queer family members Mm -hmm may be an evolutionary reaction to having multiple children because you'll have that family member and they'll take care of your kids when you Mm. get older. Okay. Right? So for me, activism was an important part of it. Mm -hmm. I was mostly interested in caring for a gay couple. Yep. And then 
there are people who are built for being a parent. Mm -hmm. I don't think I'm one of those people. I don't think I have the right maternal instincts, they call it, or, mm -hmm. or um, parental cues that are going off in my biological clock that make mm -hmm. me think, oh, I should really procreate and raise my offspring in my image. I don't have that in mm -hmm. me the way other people do. And other people who do that have those impulses. Mm -hmm. I think it's important for them to answer it mm -hmm. because that's their calling, yeah. you know, and just as importantly as I shouldn't have kids because yeah. of social expectations, they should have kids because that's their dream. And it makes sense for them. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Like there's a difference, right? Because I mean, you and I are similar in that way. Mm -hmm. When I hear a baby crying, my instinct is not to go to it. No. <laughs> like, Run away. I am, I'm such a single dude and, and a non-paternal guy mm -hmm. that that's exactly what my reaction is. My reaction is at, I want to make sure the child is safe. Right. But that's just as a citizen. That mm -hmm. has nothing to do with whether I actually want to care for that child. Yeah. Because I just don't have that in me either. Yeah. But I think that's one of the things that we both agreed on mm -hmm. like right away. Yeah. It was kind of like, I'm so happy you're having someone else's baby because it isn't mine. Yeah. I have a working womb that can carry life. You have a womb. So, so this is, <laughs> so this is me being able to help someone else in their parental journey. Mm. And I don't have to take it on myself. And also, um, when you're talking about giving things up, mm -hmm. you know, frequently people would say, well, you gave up a baby. Mm. But it's, yeah, actually, see, I never thought of that. it's actually not that way mm -hmm. for myself, for most surrogates. Mm -hmm. um, it was not my egg. It was not my genetic DNA. Mm -hmm. So therefore, it was never mine to begin with. Mm -hmm. I don't have a possessive ownership over people, mm -hmm. whether it's you, my partner, or offspring. That's not something that I possess ownership over. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, it's kind of like babysitting for nine months. Right. Yeah. So that's a good way to put it. Right. Like, yeah. so I was taking care of their kid as it grew as an embryo mm -hmm. and into a human and then gave birth to it. And then I gave them their family. Mm -hmm. It was not giving back. It was not, or gave them back their family instead of giving up mm -hmm. some. And see, it's interesting because I know that that never occurred to you. No. I could. And I could see it like right away when we were in the hospital mm -hmm. and when you were given birth. Um, it was... Uh, You're jumping ahead. I know, but like I'm jumping ahead for a reason. Okay. The reason is I'm jumping ahead and she can you can tell us the rest of the story, but I'm jumping ahead because lots of people said, was it hard for her to give it up? Mm -hmm. Right? And I, yeah. my answer was exactly that. No, like it wasn't hers to give. No. She was graciously carrying for someone else. Mm. Right? And I explained exactly how you explained it to me. Right. Um, so I think that at no point in time did it ever seem like that was hard for you. Mm -hmm. no. Even even despite like how long we were in the hospital and all that stuff that happened. Yeah. Right. Um, it just never seemed like that was an issue. No, it was a joy. Yeah. And an it honor. seemed like a joy. Yeah. yeah an honor for sure. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I mean, there were things that were changed mm -hmm. afterwards. Right. And you mentioned my body. Right. And, and the changes that came afterwards. Um, so during the pregnancy, I ended up with uh, preeclampsia, mm -hmm. right, which is high blood pressure. And so I ended up having to have a cesarean, the mm -hmm. second I've had. And there was blood thinners and there was 
mm-hmm. weight gain and and there was all sorts of stuff that went crazy and mm-hmm. then afterwards i find out my thyroid was shot mm-hmm. right so there was a lot of struggle with the physical changes mm-hmm. but if i'm real okay we mortal humans are not flo- <laughs> like we're not perfect and we're not going to stay perfect right like our bodies age and and they change and if my body changes for something good and positive in the world Mm -hmm. then i don't see that as a loss it's a gain of it of an experience right i'm in my 30s you know women in their 30s will tell you things change Mm -hmm. right and you know you mourn your youth and you're like oh i wish i had realized how gorgeous i was when i was 20 you know oops what do you do? And, but at the same time, if my body is going to change, I would like to have it to be purposeful, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's because I've carried a child or I've worked out really good, I want it to be perfect mm-hmm. because I put the effort in to mm-hmm. make that change, right? So, yeah. and I have to, I have to point out like really quick here I do not care. <laughs> I have not cared. Mm-hmm. Like, that just so, just so anyone out there listening, um, to me, every change that's happened is wonderful. Yeah. You're just as sexy as the first day we met. Thanks. And the first day we went out. And you almost did something unspeakable on the train platform. But I won't get into I that. I almost kissed you. I know. But I didn't. Unspeakable. Yeah. Kissing on the first date. Who does such scandalous things? I like how it's changed to kissing on the first date. Just so we can keep it PG-13, eh? It's like, yeah, I was just going to kiss him. That's what I was going to do. <laughs> but I went home. I know, and so did I. Yeah. yeah, I don't know how we resisted. Yeah. yeah. Well, we didn't the next time. So. But the likelihood of me <laughs> meeting a dude that I really liked, and I, I had met you three years before, and we should let we our list. Yeah, yeah. We were I had friends. been crushing on you for like three years, and I had no idea because I'm stupid. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> totally to to think that I was going to go on a date with you, and then on our second date, I tell you I'm having the baby of two other men. So if you're going to date me, you got to deal with that. Mm-hmm. That's a whew, that's a big pill to swallow. Are you kidding me? From from where I was sitting at that point, it was like. This is freaking perfect. What do I have to do here? Nothing. I'm in. <laughs> and you're going to be extra horny for like nine months. I'm in. I'm in. It's like the first year of our relationship. And I'm like, excellent. <laughs> There's a reason some surrogates partners are like, hey, so are you going to match again? Are you going to, are you going to carry another one? Another? Yeah. I'm not going to go that far yeah. because I, I just want you to be happy. Yeah. That's what I want. So, yeah. you know, and that was but, just a good experience. Yeah. Some surrogate guys or partners are like that, though. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. Like, it's weird because I don't have children and I've never had, like, been married or anything. And I, I like, so I, I do have to say there is something kind of sexy about having sex with a pregnant woman. <laughs> like, I, I know I'm throwing that out there and people are like, oh, you're so weird. You have no idea how weird I am, first of all. This is just the tip of the iceberg, right? Um, how weird I get is none of your business (laughs) well not today maybe next time maybe next time okay so tell us about the experience about that because you said i jumped ahead yeah okay so then um the the process begins with hormones Mm -hmm. right so you go through the physical like i had to do like a one-day trip to las vegas to the clinic to do the physical exam Mm -hmm. i had to do two 
mental health exams and I, I wondered if I passed them both or mm. if they forgot. I don't know. But then they, after the two mental health exams and the one physical exam, then I had to start on hormone therapy. Mm. So this was injections of progesterone and taking pills of estrogen. Mm. And I was horrible. I was so mean to people. I was so angry. I, I had started volunteering at this one agency and I showed up there and I'm like telling him how he should run his agency and all this stuff is not okay. So that carried on for um, one cycle, but I didn't have, when you're transferring an embryo, this is technical stuff for some people, mm -hmm. but the the lining inside the uterus has to be homogeneous so or it can't be homogeneous so it has to look like a sandwich there has to be like so much <laughs> it looks like a sandwich yeah okay yeah that's what the doctor said it has to have like a couple millimeters on the top and a couple millimeters on the bottom and you have to be able to see a clear defined line between it yeah. so when they called me on my first cycle they're like nope your lining's no good you gotta try again mm -hmm. get it off your medication cycle and we'll start again and that really hurt because mm -hmm. it's like uh there's something wrong with my womb right mm -hmm. so i can't even imagine what women who have fertility issues were feeling when they were hearing shit like that from mm -hmm. doctors but i think um, it'd be devastating like yeah yeah especially and, if they were trying to have children exactly yeah, yeah. and um so I, I corrected her i said i need you to actually tell me what you need from me right so i told her to send me a picture of what the doctor is looking for in that ultrasound mm -hmm. And so I meditated on that. And I think that was a really important key part mm. of my embryo transfer. Yeah. And I've actually talked to doctors about this if they studied it and they haven't. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I, I told my body, I had a conversation and I'm like, listen, uterus, we're going to, we're going to make the lining look exactly like this picture. And I meditated on it. Mm. Next time they checked it. Perfect. No problems. Mm. Exactly what they're looking for. I fly to Vegas and like a ham sandwich or like a roast beef sandwich? What does it look like? Uh, if the ham is flat, right? Like <laughs> it's, it's flat line. That's so gross. It's, it's not. Yeah, it's kind of gross. Kinda, I'm so not hungry. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess we'll have chicken after this. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so maybe they flew me to Vegas and they begun the process of the embryo embryo transfer. Um, so they take it off ice mm -hmm. a couple days before. They make sure that it looks good and strong and round. And it's usually like only divided a couple times mm -hmm. so far. Um, they didn't do any special testing with my embryo. They just picked the best looking one and put it in. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> and then when they were putting it in, I took it upon myself to meditate mm -hmm. again. Right. So it was just like some some people, their spirituality says that you choose your parents. Mm -hmm. You choose the people that you're going to be around when you come to Earth. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I believe that, but I don't discredit things just because I don't necessarily believe mm -hmm. them. Right. So I was basically saying, hey, universe, if this couple is meant to have a baby, I would like to be the carrier of that baby. Mm -hmm. And I hope that this embryo will settle into my womb and we'll be able to carry to term safely, mm -hmm. you know, and just having those prayers and that meditation brought down my stress level because the pressure is huge. Mm -hmm. When you think about it, 
each time you do IVF, in vitro fertilization, it costs a lot, Mm -hmm. a lot of money. (laughs) Okay. And so if you're thinking about that money, the expenses the parents are putting Mm -hmm. on you, the hopes that you're carrying with that transfer, it'll stress you right the heck out. Yeah, it was pretty stressful. I was going to say... Fuck, but then I let's like censoring myself. Don't censor yourself. <laughs> and then um, terrible. But then, you know, if you take the time to really meditate, mm-hmm. ground yourself, those hormones that come from stress won't be in your body. You're more likely mm-hmm. to I think, I suspect there's no studies yet, that you're more likely to have a successful transfer. Do you meditate? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean there's but there's people, there may not be any science yet. No. But that doesn't mean it's not true. Yeah. Right? Because there's, like, science takes time. Right. You know, I've yeah. heard, like, with pain management, mm-hmm. meditation works. Mm-hmm. So I can't see why not. Yeah. Like, there's lots of doctors who have studied exactly which hormones you should take when and what mm-hmm. time and stuff like this. But they haven't studied which which people meditated before their embryo transfer. Yeah. Right? Like. I don't see doctors doing that. No. <laughs> not a lot of money behind that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was an important part of my, uh, transfer and I knew instantly it took, I went home, uh, sorry, I went back to the hotel. We stayed at the Luxor, which was lovely. And I, I know. yeah. And then I, um, next day. I rented one of those little electric scooters because you're not supposed to walk. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. I was going to say something. <laughs> yeah. You're not supposed to walk after the transfer yeah. for like 48 hours, like for more than 15 minutes at a time. So mm. I was in this little ridiculous little scooter zipping around Vegas. <laughs> and we went into this little store for s- souvenirs. Yeah. And the same thing had happened with my first pregnancy too. I knew it was a girl. Mm. I knew it was female. I picked up the little pink booties and I'm not gender binary type person, mm-hmm. but I knew that you much. You were carrying a female. Yeah. 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 And so I bought the little pink booties and I kept them for the nine months. Mm-hmm. Right. And gave them as a, as a, yeah. what do they call that? Shower gift? Yeah. Or baby, like a shower. Baby gift or whatever. Yeah. And, um, but I remember you knew. I knew. Cause you said it to me right away. No doubt. Yeah. No doubt back. in my mind. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was a successful transfer first time, which is rare. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of women, a lot of people struggle a long time with many transfers and spend yeah. a lot of money doing those transfers and never have success. Mm-hmm. So I was very, very, very blessed. That's awesome. Um, throughout the nine months I had, I was super glad to come off the hormones. The hormones are the worst part of that thing. Mm-hmm. I, I'll do the labor a hundred times if I never have to do this hormones again. And, but I carried, she says that now that she's not in labor. Just yeah. So you, just so you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so that was in May that mm. I, that I had that transfer. Yeah. And then, so I think it was August or September was pride and September. Orlando shooting yeah. happened that same year. Yeah. And that was really profound for me. Mm. And I actually, um, went to the memorial that we had here in Calgary mm-hmm. and spoke. And I said, like, it's, it's absolutely beyond me to think that in this day and age, 2016 at the time, 2018 now mm-hmm. that people still felt that much fear 
and hatred and hatred yeah. that they would do something like that and i'm carrying the baby for a gay couple and i want them to be safe i want their family to have as much love and support as any mm. other family would and it was terrifying to me that that happened and it was yeah. heartbreaking and i i it was really emotional um marching in the pride parade i marched with my midwife red community mm. midwives and they were a really queer positive community that mm -hmm. like really pays attention to the different cultural elements of carrying mm -hmm. a child because delivery and pregnancy and fertility is different all mm -hmm. around the world and Canada is a multicultural country. Mm -hmm. So they would have clients who are Muslim or mm -hmm. are indigenous or What's her name and where does she work? Her name is Erin. Erin, yeah. I don't remember her last name off the top of my head. Okay. Um, but it's Red Community Midwives. Red Community Midwives. Yeah. yeah, she was really good. She, she was, was incredible. Really, yeah, incredibly human. So. Yeah, like just the the way that she was able to connect me to my pregnancy experience mm -hmm. was amazing and healing for me too. Mm -hmm. Because I'd been through a lot with the first pregnancy and it was almost as if I was going through a healing journey with the mm -hmm. second pregnancy. I sort of seen Mike too. Oh, it was incredible. Yeah. And she's just a beautiful human. Yeah. You know, she really did like, Hey, like connect mm -hmm. with you and help you. Yeah. 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 And over, over and above what I think a midwife would typically do. I, I certainly had no idea. Yeah. Like, but then again, I didn't know midwives still exist. So, really? Yeah, I had no idea. I learned a whole lot that during <laughs> wow. this process. Yeah, midwives, yeah. I should mention, are if your pregnancy is no has no complications, mm -hmm. um, midwives are a less expensive alternative. They are covered by Alberta Healthcare, oh. and in in a multiple provinces across mm -hmm. Canada, but not all of them, I think. And the delivery is typically more pleasant for most mm -hmm. women at a birthing center at home at the midwife's mm -hmm. clinic than it is at a hospital. Hospital is a place for illness. Yeah, right? well, usually associated with it, for sure. Right. Yeah. So if you're going to the hospital, there's typically something at risk for you mm -hmm. the, or the the baby being born, and it's expensive. Doctors are there to deal with sickness, mm -hmm. right? And, and sometimes, not all doctors, but sometimes those doctors are not very careful mm -hmm. about bringing life into the world. One of the things I remember about my first pregnancy is the first thing they did when he came out was stab him in the foot with a, not a needle to test his blood sugar. The most delicate spot on mm. a person's body and they're cutting him. First thing he does. He hasn't been washed clean. He hasn't been held. He hasn't mm. been anything. It's just the first thing they're doing. Stab mm. you in the foot. And so, and I mean, that's the medical procedure mm. that we have been taught is best to ensure that, that these kids are going to make it through the delivery. Mm. But as far as kind to the, to the mm. new human welcome to earth, stab you, right? Like it's not really holistic in that mm. way and would that. cause a lot of stress for the baby, for the, for the, family everybody involved is like oh my god mm -hmm. and so i wasn't thrilled about having to go to a hospital i originally had booked a delivery uh, a birthing center mm -hmm. and had hoped to give a natural birth there um vaginally but it didn't work out that way yeah i there are some women that are just not built to do that and that's okay right and so 
yeah, I mean, I was a little disappointed. I'm still a little disappointed that mm. I'll never get to experience that. But I have delivered two healthy humans mm -hmm. onto Earthside. So that's pretty cool. Right? That's really cool. Yeah. And I got to watch it. You did. You got it's to watch it. And gnarly, you... man. A cesarean is pretty intense stuff. Oh, yeah. I wasn't going to miss it, though. Yeah. He actually looked over the sheet at my guts, pulled mm -hmm. out. Yeah, it was all over the place. And just as I looked over, the doctor like looked at me and said, hi. <laughs> <laughs> she just kind of looked up and she's like, hey, can you see? That was pretty neat. Yeah. 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 And they were really accommodating at the hospital. Like yeah. they typically only allow one person into the operating room mm -hmm. with a cesarean. But we had, okay, we had y me, of course, you and both of the guys mm -hmm. and my midwife yeah. all in there. It was like party to celebrate. It was, a party. It, was yeah. it was so crazy and amazing and like then, by that time, like they give you a lot of drugs. Yeah. Like serious. Well, they got to give you an epidural. For yeah. That, right. Yeah. So. And so it was better than the first epidural I had ever yeah. had, but you know, still seeing, like feeling them pull her out, and then <sighs> I can only imagine. What yeah. Feel like eh? Yeah, it's unbelievable. Weird. And then and then passing her to the guys, yeah. and seeing them hold her, for yeah. the first time. Yeah. And see their child for the first time. It was pretty awesome. Oh, it was yeah. incredible. It was a special moment. It was, like, I cried for sure. Oh, I yeah. think we were all crying. Yeah, watching those two guys hold hold her for like the first the first time. Hmm. Like, uh, yeah, it was pretty special. Yeah, it's pretty special to be there. Yeah, that was like the moment their parenting journey started. Yeah, you know, and the legacy of their family started in that. Mm. In that, I think it started when you first agreed to carry to be honest yeah because they had their hopes right like that's true they were in they were invested just like you were yeah because you guys all got along really well too we really did yeah. and he actually did keep a book from day one yeah that we connected yeah. so i guess you're right yeah. I, I, I i just remember that i remember yeah. that like they were you guys were a part of each other's lives at that point there mm -hmm. was no like um and it wasn't like a client employer thing right which no. you might get if it was like a half a million bucks or something. yeah you get this client employer stuff yeah right yeah well, that wasn't like it was like a family it was like you guys mm -hmm. were all family and i mean shoot i even got to hang out with them yeah right like i even got to know them and yeah. that was pretty cool man and and they went above and beyond for getting to know me too totally like they, did. they didn't have to come here to see me when i was six months pregnant they didn't have to come mm -hmm. here and see me before I was pregnant, after the contract was signed. Yeah. Like, they chose to do that and get to know me as a person. Mm -hmm. and, and that was a really special, generous connection mm -hmm. that I had never anticipated. Yeah. You know, and I was very fortunate. And I kind of feel like I'm bragging right now because I know that there's some surrogates mm -hmm. and they never even get to meet the intended parents. Really? Well, it's rare. Yeah. But yeah, they're like our agency still deals with celebrities. Mm. So there are some agencies, you know, when there's you sign. There's some people that don't want to. Yeah. yeah. Like there's some people that kind of just picture you as the. The oven. The, the oven. <laughs> yeah. And they're just going to kind of give you the egg and. Yeah. Ding. Ready. Good. Thanks. Bye. Yeah. You know, and. That seems so cold though, eh? Fertility is a complicated issue. Yeah. and And I can. If I put myself in the shoes of somebody who cannot carry 
their own mm-hmm. child and feels it's their destiny, I can understand why that would be painful for them. Oh, God, yeah. And why they would not want to look at the person who can carry it so easily they mm-hmm. do it for others. Yeah. Right? So I can't understand where they're coming yeah. from. It's 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 not easy on the surrogates, though. For sure. Right. Like, I'm not judging nobody. Because, no. I mean, it's going to take all kinds of people to get it done, right? Totally. Yeah. 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 It just seems a little colder. Yeah. Yeah. But that could be because the windows are open. It is a little chilly in, in yeah. September. I know. Yeah. But, yeah, so for me, it was the best thing that I think I've done in my recovery. Mm. Right? Um, I'll do it again for them. Yeah. If I'm healthy enough. I don't know if I'll be healthy enough. Huh? Um, but, yeah, it was definitely... I think the only thing I've ever wanted to do that's even comparable is be like a bone marrow donor or mm. a kidney donor. Yeah. Right. But neither of those are an option for me. Mm. You know, I, um, I took myself off the blood donor and bone marrow donor registry, um, because okay. of the way that they, uh, um, exclude, uh, gay men mm. or men who have had sex with men. Yeah. Um, right now in Canada, the way it works is that a man has to have been, um, celibate for one year. That's only if he's homosexual. Yeah. Yeah. So from, if he's from, like heterosexual, he doesn't have to be celibate. If it's heterosexual, you can have like a bajillion partners. That's bullshit. Right? That's why I took myself off the registry. Just, yeah. Just to add the that in there. Yeah. And so like if, if you're, and they do ask like, do you know the history of your partners? And you're like, nope. They're like, Okay. Go ahead anyway. And they'll test your blood, yeah. right? Which is a scientific approach to it. Why wouldn't they but, just test it all around? I don't get it. Yeah. And, but the exclusion of it um, was enough to make me decide that, nope, they, if they do not consider gay mm. men's blood useful enough to their blood donor program, then they don't need mine either. Yeah. Right? And yeah. when they change the policy to be scientifically in line with... Mm-hmm policies like in italy where they don't screen anybody for anything they just test the blood they test the blood yeah blood's clean blood goes into person who needs blood Mm -hmm. simple right and that makes sense yeah there is however uh some i'm going off on a tangent here but there is some science that actually says that if you transfer more than three units Mm -hmm. into a patient that they start taking on personality traits of the donor particularly if it all comes from the same donor. Really? So this would actually, if this is true, and some science says it is, and some science says it isn't, Mm -hmm. this would actually explain to me more likely why they would exclude gay men. Hmm. Because if you've got a... You don't want people to turn gay? Well, you've got a... That's what they're thinking? Yeah, that's what they're afraid of. You got some married heterosexual man who gets in a car crash (laughs) and he needs like 20 units of blood, whatever... (laughs) And all of a sudden he comes out and he's like, oh, Sorry. I don't know if I think I might need to go to the bathhouse tonight. Right? Like, <laughs> all of a sudden. It, hypothetically. <laughs> oh, I'm dying. I'm dying. It's like you could catch it by rubbing up against a dude. But Mind you, when I rub up against a dude, sometimes I catch it. So. Yeah. But like... <laughs> You can laugh, but the personality transfer thing is yeah. known in many of the organ transplants. Okay, but personality, like, 
A personality trait is not gay. No. That's not a personality no, trait. No, it's not. It's not. But if you're a doctor and you're a homophobe. And an idiot. And an, yeah. and on the blood donor registry and you're like looking at all this data and you're like, oh, I don't want people to catch gay. Right? I don't want people to catch gay. <laughs> we Right? Oh, my God. The fact that that is still a, a possibility in 2018 Oh my I'm, lord! I might be making shit up. I hope I hope you're making it up, and I hope it's just for fun because that makes me a little bit more than mad. Yeah, right. Because I understand. Look, anyone's allowed to think whatever they want. You can think, okay, homosexuality is wrong, bad, whatever you want to think. Okay, but if you're a doctor, okay, don't be stupid. Like mm. if you're a doctor, just don't be stupid. We count on doctors to not be stupid and not spread that kind of bullshit. Yeah. God help us all. But doctors have a cone of like silence around a lot of their they practices a cone too. of a lot of shit yeah you know like if there's something that's not socially accepted by the doctor mm. society and peer review studies then they exclude some of, their some stuff. of them do can, yeah can we do a little pause for a couple moments yeah right on okay it's interesting because you know before i met you mm. i've met lots of people that obviously had different ideas about sex and all that kind of stuff yeah i'm totally changing the subject cool but that's because it was seem it, it seem seemingly went in that direction anyway yeah. right um but it's one of the things that really impressed me about you and still impresses me about you is your ability to be like honest and forthright about that right about my sexuality yeah, yeah. about your sexuality yeah. and um it, it actually allowed me to be the same Right. And I know I've told you that and you probably don't believe it, but it is 100 percent true. Mm -hmm. Right. Because I've been bisexual most of my life. I came out of the closet when I was 24. Born that way, baby. I know. Born that way. And that's the way it is. Right. Like I came out and I, 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 I was out for like a year and then I was like scared shitless. So I went back in the closet mm -hmm. and decided I was going to try to move in with a lady. And of course, we all know how that shit goes. Yeah. Right. It's like when you try to force it. So I just always appreciated that about you like that. There's so many impressive facts mm -hmm. about you and your life that um, it's hard to narrow it down to just like one or two. Thanks. Right. Well, you're welcome. It's true. <laughs> like it, it's uh, it's impressive. Like I never walked in the pride parade. Never okay. occurred to me to walk in the pride parade. I'll <laughs> be honest with you. It just never occurred to me. I didn't think it was for me. Right. Like and then that year when you were pregnant and we, and that was my first year that I walked in it. And now I've done it three years in a row. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, you have. Um, and not only done it, but like love doing it. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, genuinely to the bottom of my soul, like this year I had like the biggest cheese eating grin on my face all day, mm -hmm. all day, because it just, there's just so much love. Yeah. Right. Like it's just so much love. And, uh, um, so yeah, so conversations about like people who still like Westboro Baptist and all that kind of shit. Mm -hmm. I I mean, you could totally blank out their name because they're yeah, I would too. But like, um, uh, obviously, you might want to edit that too. But that's <laughs> just I don't even like giving them any airtime, right? Even when it's just a conversation, because they're they're so useless. Like it, it's such a useless. It it illustrates to me a person who was raised in a church. How outdated churches are. Well, that church, anyway. I, I can tell you some interesting things that I've learned about that group in do particular. It. A lot of what they do for their protest 
is to actually be victims of violent attack and sue them for money. That's how, that's how their church makes money. And I heard that, but what's interesting about violent protesters like that, people who are hateful and, and we do have some every year at our Calgary event as well. We do. And I don't think I've ever been to an event ever where there has not been some mm. backlash. Yeah. Um, they think that when they are telling people that they're going to hell for being queer, they're being loving because in their minds, they, they think they're doing a service. They're doing a service yeah. and they're trying to help people. And when, when that's all, you know, I can under, I can almost understand mm-hmm. almost right. Because if I see somebody, you know, hitting themselves in the head and risking hurting themselves and I'm like, you need to stop. I might mm-hmm. grab them and hurt them to make them stop hitting themselves. Mm-hmm. So if I believe what they believe, which I don't, that being queer is wrong morally, yeah. that seems like a good idea in their minds. Yeah. They're brainwashed. They're drinking their own flavor of Kool-Aid. They don't know any different. Mm-hmm. And That's true. so I have a lot of pity for them, mm-hmm. right? But I drink my brand of Kool-Aid too. Yeah. And we all do. And when I'm reading the Bible, mm-hmm. I'm reading about Jesus talking about how some people are born eunuchs. Mm-hmm. Some people are eunuchs for God and some people are eunuchs for the, because they were made that way by other people. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now there was not that many people running around in first century Jerusalem without testicles, that this was a talking point for Jesus. Okay, let's talk about the word eunuch in first century Rome. Law about slaves was defined as either a man who was not capable of having children, would not lie with women, and would not choose to marry a woman. Mm -hmm. So those men were typically made slaves. We might interpret the way that the Roman law about eunuchs is written to translate into what today we would know as a homosexual or as a transgendered man, Mm -hmm. right? Or a transgendered person, sorry. And so for me, when I'm reading what Jesus says, he's baptizing eunuchs, he's Mm -hmm. affirming people who are two eunuchs in a relationship, Mm -hmm. he's talking about them being born that way mm-hmm. that sounds a whole lot like something we've been saying lately mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. to me that sounds like the cat of nine tails rearing jesus who's flipping tables of the dove sellers mm-hmm. telling people hey quit shitting on these eunuchs let them be as queer as they want to be you know they are doing it for the glory of heaven just like you are mm-hmm. get over it So I love getting into biblical debates about homosexuality in the Bible because Mm -hmm. there are so many examples of loving homosexual unions Mm -hmm. and Jesus affirming those unions that I have no idea where they're getting the idea that it's not acceptable except for the Old Testament and Saul. Saul, Mm -hmm. he can be misinterpreted and I do believe it's a misinterpretation. And and maybe it's a misinterpretation or maybe 
it's a hundred percent accurate interpretation of a book that's archaic. Yeah, right? and written like, by people who were attempting to control populations. Yeah, and, and so like it's one of those things where I could I can, I mean I have no business anyway. It's none of my business really. Mm-hmm. But if I think back about the biblical times, it's like okay, fine. You're trying to figure it out. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. We're trying to figure shit out, right? But we're no longer trying to figure it out. Mm-mm. Like we're no longer in like we're not in the dark ages. We don't have only one source of information, right? The Romans yeah. or whoever, yeah. right? And I just think it's time it's time we just let it go. Mm-hmm. You know? You know what's interesting is I'm I'm in the middle of reading a book right now. And I can't recall the title of it off the top of my head. It's about leadership. Mm-hmm. Right. And and it discredits me to not remember the the title of the book. Um Where's my phone? Did you grab my phone? But in there, they're talking about the fall of civilizations, which has happened seven times in the history of humanity, right? And we can actually trace the patterns that humans go through Mm -hmm. when societies are about to collapse, Mm -hmm. whether we're talking about the Romans or we're talking about um, Babylon or what have you. Okay. Or America. Or America. Yeah, we're about to talk about them. Who do we choose to be? Facing reality, claiming leadership, restoring sanity by Margaret Wheatley. Margaret J. Wheatley. So she, she cites a few studies in here. And the researcher that was doing the studies on what precedes a societal collapse only studied 18 different examples of societies collapsing before he said it's before he stopped and said, the evidence is so conclusive, I don't have to keep studying. Mm. So that means that for those 18 different communities, which collapsed, they saw the same patterns, Mm. exactly the same each time. And polarizing was common Mm. in all of those. So when we're looking at a society right now, which is so polarized, it's exactly what they have seen in previous eras when mm-hmm. societies have about to collapse. Mm-hmm. And so for some people that's scary. It's like, oh, it's the apocalypse. But for me, it's really exciting mm-hmm. because it gives people like me, and I don't like to call myself a visionary, but people have called me that, mm-hmm. who have visions for humanity, the earth, future, and what it could be. Mm-hmm. You know, when I'm hearing things like, oh, the polarities of society right now is indicative of societal collapse. Mm-hmm. That means that something new can grow out of it. It's a forest fire. Yeah. You can't get those baby pine trees to grow without cooking those pine cones in a forest fire. Mm-hmm. That's the way it rolls. That is the nature of earth and our systems. So we could talk about my business now if you don't mind. Yeah. Yeah. So, because Foodscape mm-hmm. is a big part of me coming out of my addiction, coming out of the experiences that I had while I was in addiction, and trying to manifest that into something positive. Mm-hmm. So, um, I'll go back a little bit here into into my addiction time. Sure. Um, I, I was in a severe alcoholic Mm -hmm. um, and I use a lot of marijuana so cannabis and we're talking like as much as some people smoke cigarettes in a day I was smoking cannabis 
I was doing this well off the medications that had been prescribed Mm -hmm. to me by doctors and in place of them. Mm -hmm. So anytime I would feel the symptoms of mental illness, I would take cannabis thinking that that will numb the symptoms Mm -hmm. when in fact it was exacerbating it. Mm -hmm. Some people are like, oh, cannabis is 100% safe. Everyone should take it. No, it's not. It's not. There are some people it will make them very, very sick. And I was one of those people. Mm-hmm. But this, during that illness, I had visions. You know, I saw things that were really profoundly disturbing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I was experiencing like this waking dream where people were like going on an exodus from the world we know today into the wilderness and like growing this whole new society in from the rubble right Mm -hmm. and it was pretty incredible for me and i wrote a lot of it down and when then i got sober and was able to commit myself to recovery commit myself to my own Mm well-being i looked back at some of that writing and i went huh what would that look like in our current system Mm -hmm. so if i can't be moses and i can't take people into the wilderness right then what is my legacy Mm -hmm. and so i was like, what do I want to leave on this earth? I'm not interested in children. I'm not interested in being a parent. So I looked at what I was experiencing and how I imagined the world to be in that waking dream. Mm -hmm. And so I started putting steps together of what a business would look like in the capitalist system that we currently inhabit in in the consumer world that we have right now. That is entirely, we're told that our self-worth is based off of how much stuff we Mm -hmm. have, right? Or how attractive we are or how influential we are. This is what our society is like right now. Mm -hmm. What kind of entity would I need to create to create positive change? Well, it's a business, Mm -hmm. right? And so I started studying about social enterprise. So in Europe... A social enterprise is defined as a for-profit business that is partnered with a charity. And that business serves a social good. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I studied social enterprise. I, I took courses with Sean Looney, who's launched 11 social enterprises, primarily in Manitoba. And I studied... I left a 13-year career as a goldsmith and jewelry designer and became and started studying permaculture design. Mm-hmm. What's permaculture design? Permaculture is a style of design which follows a set of ethics. It was originally designed for landscape, mm-hmm. right? So if you're going to design a landscape, what ethics need to be in place for that landscape to be restorative mm-hmm. to the earth, so healing instead of hurting so that's one of the ethics yeah um earth care people care fair share and transition Mm -hmm. are the four ethics so earth care needs to take care of the earth fair share whatever you take from the earth so if you're harvesting something you know you still need to put the nutrients back into the soil Mm -hmm. if you are hiring people to farm make sure everyone gets a fair share Mm -hmm. people care basically means that we're not allowed to do something to that will harm people Mm -hmm. in the process so if we cut down the amazon rainforest to farm cows you know mcdonald's then we can't be 
like that's that's against an ethic in permaculture keeping in mind that the fourth ethic is transition so if we're designing anything and our system currently does not accommodate any of the desired outcomes mm-hmm. right so we have to cut down trees to plant a farm that we go by transition mm-hmm. so instead of creating a farm of singular monocrops we would create a food forest oh, okay so with multiple crops right okay. which work off of each other because mm-hmm. um Everything works in systems on Earth, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's human systems, environmental systems, weather systems, everything has patterns that they follow. So we try and mimic those patterns. Biomimicry gives our systems resilience. Mm-hmm. So if I design a human system, like a building, let's say a house, mm-hmm. and it works with the natural systems, like the sun rises in the east, so I'm going to face my windows east so that the house is warmed all day or um face it south so that it's catching the most sun mm-hmm. for growing in my greenhouse right things like this give our designs more resilience they're restorative um they're cheaper typically mm-hmm. than traditional architecture and design and and uh, drafting mm-hmm. so my final assignment for taking that course was to design a business mm-hmm. I use the same ethics, fair share, people care, earth care, and transition. Mm -hmm. And I created a business that would have all of those embodied into the everyday practices. Mm -hmm. So I called it Foodscapes Calgary Mm -hmm. is is what it is right now. I'm hoping it could be Foodscape Canada one day. The social enterprise serves two good purposes two social goods one is environmental care Mm -hmm. and one is poverty reduction Mm -hmm. so when a client hires us to redesign their front yard or to redesign their rental property so that the tenants don't have to mow the grass Mm -hmm. we do that with the same ethics of land care Mm -hmm. that are taught in permaculture and the same ethics that I was taught as a Métis person. Mm. Okay, so we're talking about indigenous land care ethics. So, and they're very similar, but there's some very key differences for designing in both techniques. Mm-hmm. And then when our client says, okay, now I want you to take that design and implement it, plant that garden, transform my grass lawn into something that's actually going to thrive and I'm not going to have to waste money and time mowing and watering it. Then we will hire a landscape crew of people who are marginalized. Mm-hmm. Now, for us, that means people who are in recovery, who can't get a job because there's like a two-year gap in their resume when they were using mm-hmm. and then when they went to treatment. But now they're sober and they need a job that's going to understand that someday they might have to take their lunch hour and go to an AA meeting to stay sober mm-hmm. or somebody who has mental health struggles and has not been able to keep a job because they're frequently calling in sick mm-hmm. for work when in actuality they're having mental health crisis and don't know how to tell their boss that. So we want to create a work environment that actually supports that type mm-hmm. of person in the struggles that they face with traditional employment. Mm-hmm. 
And the techniques that we're going to use for the business structure is the cooperative model. Mm -hmm. So here in Calgary, we've got co-op grocery stores. So this is a producer co-op. So all of the producers, all the people that grow the food, come together, sell the food, and they share the profits, mm-hmm. right? As well, there is client co-op. So the clients purchase from this co-op and the profits get shared out in dividends. Mm-hmm. So Foodscape is exactly the same thing, where our workers are also the owners of the company. So instead of a bunch of marginalized people working to make me money, Mm -hmm. they're instead working to make the company money and they take home an equal share of the company's profits each quarter or each year. Cool. Yeah. Right on. And how close are you to starting that? Well, we're, I've started designing for Mm -hmm. a couple of clients and it's really exciting. Some of the things that I've gotten to design, I work with an elder on all of my designs. Mm -hmm. So when I'm conceptualizing these ideas, I'm making sure that a knowledge keeper is reviewing them to make sure Mm -hmm. that they still embody what I consider to be correct and what they think needs to be changed. And sometimes I get some feedback that's incredible and really inspiring. Um, we have been asked to pre- be one of six presenters for the Soul of the Next Economy Forum mm-hmm. happening at Ambrose University on September 28th. Nice. So this used to be like a lion's den, dragon's den type scenario where mm-hmm. people were competing, right? And they've removed that structure. And now what they're doing is what's called the Thousand Ninjas technique. Mm-hmm. And instead of people competing, they bring their idea to a community of people who care about social enterprise, not-for-profit social good. Mm -hmm. They present their idea, and then those people, whether they're industry leaders or not, will give their input Mm -hmm. into the idea. So I'm going to present Foodscape Calgary to a group. I have no idea how many people will be there. A large group of people. And they're going to tell me what they think of it and how I can improve the idea and make it better. Cool. Yeah. So I'm pretty excited about that. At the same time, we're going to be launching the booster campaign crowdfunder for the startup capital. Mm -hmm. So this will buy the trucks and the tools that our grounds, our earth workers will need for going out and doing the landscaping Mm -hmm. come the spring. Um, It'll buy the equipment I need in order to do effective designs. Yeah. Um, I'm already doing fantastic designs. I gotta say, mm-hmm. I'm really excited about yeah, them. Yeah, they're incredible. Yeah, and then um, what being have you able designed to, recently. Um, most recently was actually a children's park, mm-hmm. and so the community approached me and said, "We want to have an indigenous component to this children's park. What can we do?" And I came up with a bunch of concepts for different play learning structures. So mm-hmm. this would be something that the kids could play on, and would us familiarize them with Mm -hmm. themes but then i wanted to make it so that they could be taught by an elder at another time and they could be supported in teaching the children more in depth Mm -hmm. so pardon me my best my design that i worked with them was a tp which has a medicine wheel and a buffalo and some of the star stories that mm. are part of the Blackfoot creation stories. Okay. 
So, and a bench for an elder to sit on. So the kids, when they're there with their parents on a sunny afternoon, are just going to play in the teepee. Mm. And it's fun. And, oh, look, here's a medicine wheel. And it's just fun, right? But if an elder is brought to the location, then he can or she can point out the star stories and say, this is the story of what you know as the Big Dipper. And we know this as the... um six brothers no sorry that's the pleiades so the pleiades is a story of the six brothers mm-hmm. right and the bearskin woman and so they'll be able to explain the creation stories of the blackfoot community mm-hmm. to the to the people that's cool yeah that's cool yeah. some of those creation stories are pretty awesome mm-hmm. yeah mind you i find all creation stories incredible they really are considering they came out of nowhere mm-hmm. like these people were just sitting around and said hmm that looks interesting mm-hmm. or however they came about it right like it's pretty cool yeah it's pretty cool stuff right on thanks yeah it's exciting mm-hmm. excellent anything else you want to talk about um just a little blurb on recovery yeah so when <laughs> yes it's a recovery podcast i'm just going to talk about it for like two minutes <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, I kind of, like, I don't think of myself as any sort of guru or sage or someone who knows anything more than the next person. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a couple things that I experienced in my recovery that I wanted to pass on. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in the rooms at, like, one of my first meetings in the first month of recovery, mm-hmm. someone was speaking and they were talking about the different types of alcohol. Mm. And he said... You know, I was always told you don't drink isopropyl alcohol because it will make you go physically blind. Mm -hmm. But what I've learned is that for me, drinking any alcohol will make me spiritually blind. Mm -hmm. And it made me personally completely incapable of seeing the degree of harm that I had brought on the lives Mm -hmm. of the people I loved. So sometimes you'll hear people in the community and they'll be like, oh, I don't understand why she wouldn't get sober for kids. I don't understand why he would lose his marriage over that. And I I want people to, there's debates about whether or not it's a disease, whether or not it's a sickness of the mind. When people, when I was deep in my addiction, there was no filter that would show me the degree of harm mm-hmm. I was causing other people in their life. And they're likely just the same. Mm-hmm. It's kind of shut off that part of the brain that makes you aware of mm-hmm. your empathy capabilities and your ability to hurt other people. Mm-hmm. And so I'll constantly, there's one song by a perfect circle mm-hmm. called the noose. Right. And he's talking about making amends to the dead. There are people in my life that I'll never be able to make amends to. And so it is by living in sobriety that I will try my best Mm -hmm. to have a positive impact to the same degree that I had a negative impact on the world. Mm -hmm. Um, I I was in treatment. I was in the hospital for three months. Mm -hmm. I was in treatment for nine months. So I was in an institution for a year getting sober. So sometimes I'll hear people and they'll be like, oh, I I don't have time to go Mm -hmm. to treatment. I have too much stuff going on. 
there's too much in my life that's important. I don't want to go right now. Mm-hmm. I promise if you're an addict like I was and you avoid going to treatment and having other people help you in your recovery journey, you will lose everything that you think is important right now. It will be gone and you probably won't be able to get it back by that point. So if there's any part of you that's like, hmm, maybe I should take a year off work and get my shit sorted Mm -hmm. out. Listen to that small, quiet, still voice inside you because it's trying to save your life and it's fighting against a monster of addiction that wants you dead. Mm -hmm. There's a small part of me right now that's just hoping that somebody heard that and it like made a difference. Somebody will hear it. And I mean, that's the only reason I say it. Yeah. I was lucky enough that someone said it to me. Mm-hmm. And so I pass it on. But I think that's really the most of what I can share. Mm-hmm. Uh, unless you had any questions. No. And, you know, the truth of the matter is, is that you're like one of the <clears throat> one of the key points that I see from your story of recovery. Like mm-hmm. one of the key points is you can either be sober and do nothing. Right. And. And your life will be hard. It'll be harder. I guarantee it'll be harder because mm-hmm. I've done it. I've been sober and done nothing yeah. and just basically rot, sat in my rot, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that was early sobriety. So you can do that. You can 100% do it, right? But if you really want to like experience what recovery has to offer, what life has to offer, forget about recovery for a second, mm-hmm. but just what life has to offer, you got to dive into life, oh, yeah. right? You got to do things like... Whatever suits your fancy. So when I say the next things I'm going to say, I'm not saying everybody should do it the same way. That's not what I'm saying. Mm -mm. Right? Like, not everybody can be a surrogate. No. Not everybody has to be a surrogate. Please don't try if you don't feel like that's right for you. Yeah, like totally. Find find what works for you. But see, if you don't find something that works for you, most likely you'll end up like I was and you'll sit in your own rot, in your own bill, because that's basically what I'm good at. Mm. what's what i was good at when i came in was self-pity and wallowing because it made me feel good somehow Mm -hmm. right if i was to answer you now why i did it i I wouldn't be able to figure it out you were the martyr you were so hard it doesn't make any (laughs) sense when you look at it in hindsight from a healthier mind totally when you're in the middle of it it's perfectly reasonable to do f all and just try to stay sober Mm -hmm. however Based on what you've heard so far in any of these podcasts, people who do nothing, they don't hang around. Mm-hmm. They don't hang around typically very long. The, the, the stats are poor at the best of times for people to get and stay sober. Like the stats are shit. One in ten? Yeah, it's terrible. And if, depending on who you ask, it's like a level of terrible. It's not, it doesn't get really good unless you're a, for-profit entity trying to make more money. Yeah. Right? Then all of a sudden your stats are incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, most of that stuff is bullshit though, mm-hmm. because the stats are hard. It's hard to get and stay sober. Mm-hmm. Part of that's because um, we think we have to like stop living, right, in order to stay sober. Yeah. And it's the absolute opposite. The whole truth is we start living. Totally. Once we start living and stop surviving, mm-hmm. holy crap, life just takes on a whole different turn. Mm-hmm. right and you're an example of that thank you you're welcome thank you for coming tonight mm-hmm. you know um 
So I think that's it for tonight. I think uh, I'll we'll wrap it up there unless you have anything else you want to say, Heather. Thanks for having me here. I'm really excited for your podcast. Thanks. Well, I'm th- glad you came. And and you're an amazing person oh, thank to, you. to bring these people together to share their stories of recovery and the hope that it benefits other people. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. I'm just so honored to be able to do it. Like I really am. To be able to hear like stories... Um, there's probably a part of me that just wishes we were all stuck in the oral tradition and mm. we would just like tell stories to each other and that's how we would learn. And that's how um, we'd stay just, warm all winter. Yeah. I just, I think that that makes more sense to me, which is weird because I have written books and the written words you think would be more eloquent, but there's something about it when human beings write stuff in books, all of a sudden it becomes rigid right and whereas when we have the oral tradition of telling stories much more flexible mm-hmm. much more flexible mm-hmm. and i think it because it's more flexible more people are apt to pick it up and learn mm-hmm. right from those stories so anyway i think it's really cool this the sacred garden or what you're thinking of to have an elder there to present those oral stories to people i i think you can't even like you can't put a price tag on that stuff, yeah right so thanks again for coming my pleasure um and no matter what happens you are one sexy woman um, <laughs> i'd like to remind you uh that the opinions shared are those of the individuals and not representative of freedom's path recovery society or any other affiliation we may share with organizations or individuals A huge thank you to Wild Rose United Church for your open-hearted giving to the community at large, that you have graciously provided space and love for us to work within, and we cannot thank the staff, volunteers, members of the church enough for all that you do every day. Thank you, Darcy Robinson, for not only running this podcast, but for sharing your expertise, time, passion for podcasts, and of course, all of the equipment that... None of us would have any idea how to use had you not been here. <laughs> we would have been calling you anyway. Help. Um, so he, you're doing it as a volunteer man, and I, I can't thank you enough, dude. It's huge. So, uh, And he also wants me to say that he really appreciates being here. <laughs> and it, he, I think it's true. I believe him that he actually does. Uh, I am not here without each of our board members, Trent Baker, Todd Deer, Christine Pimiskern, Heather Morijo, thank you, Wayne Lurie, and John James. Thank you, Trent Baker, for you and your group's continued support, both financially and spiritually, to me along the way. Thank you for believing, even when there were times that your belief and courage allowed me to find my own. Thank you, my friend. I cannot stress it enough how much you mean to me. To all of the individuals who graciously donate their money and time to helping Freedom's Path, Um, first become a society and now a charity. Thank you so much. Who is Freedom's Path? We work directly with individuals and families struggling and suffering with addiction of all types, mental illness, codependency, and the multitude of difficulties humans bring forward as we attempt to make life-altering changes. Last but not least, thank you, Heather, for sharing your beauty, your passion, and your truth with us, even if it was just a glimpse into it. We really appreciate it, and I know I do. If you're close to giving up, regardless of what your difficulty might be, please reach out to someone. You can always give up tomorrow, or maybe you don't have to. To anyone listening, imagine that your voice might be the only one someone hears inside their darkness, 
What is it you would like to say to them? What is it you would like to have said to you if you find yourself in the darkness? If you are interested in being a guest on the podcast or looking to make a donation or help in some other way, please contact us through our website, www.freedomspathrecoverysociety.ca or on Facebook at Freedoms Path Recovery Society. As for me, David Lurie, I wish you all the best wherever you are, whatever you're doing. Be safe and try to have some fun. Our time is quite limited after all.